Now, it is very easy for a pastor to be prideful. Uh, one thing that I always remind myself is, is stay humble. Stay humble. Uh, because uh, being a pastor, you're standing in front of an audience, a congregation. Uh, young, old, uh, people from various backgrounds. Uh, you also have people who have various jobs. A lot of people in, in, in power and position in this world. And yet, for, for this 20 to 30 minute time span, everyone is listening to you. Right? Everyone is, is writing down what you're saying. And so it is really humbling in, in many ways. And a lot of times it is really tempting for me uh, to use this platform, to use this pulpit to say whatever I want to say. Because uh, it, is, it is a position of influence. And that's why I think my role model in ministry is John the Baptist. Because he's not just a great preacher, a preacher who would stick to God's word and who would speak what is true, but he's so humble. He understands who he is. He understands his role. He understands that he's simply a messenger. He's carrying the message of God. Uh, We see that in, in today's passage. In verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. So last week we saw that John the Baptist, he shares this incredible message from, uh, from based, a lot of it based on the book of Isaiah to repent. Uh, that's his main message, that he's speaking to um, these religious leaders uh, in a, such a powerful way, uh, asking them to repent, telling them to look at their own sins. And so his message was so powerful, his population was off the charts to the point where people were even thinking that John the Baptist was the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ, the one that all the Jews were waiting for. So he's, he's in this celebrity status. People are traveling this long distance just to listen to John the Baptist. They didn't have live stream back then, so they actually had to travel to hear his message. People were getting baptized. And so he's a famous preacher. He's so famous to the point that the religious leaders, they don't know what to do with John the Baptist. And so people are, are, are exalting him. People are saying, you, you, you're probably the Christ because, you no, know, you're different. But John says in verse 16, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So we see from John's words a very simple message. John says that he is greater than I. The one who's coming, the one that I'm preparing for, uh, Jesus, he is greater than I. And that's the first point I want to make, that always remember that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater, not just greater than John, but he's greater than us. He's greater than I no, John not only clarifies that, that he's not the Messiah, that he's not the promised one, but he points his finger to Jesus, and he says that this one is, is, is it. Like, he is greater than I. And, and I love the passage that we saw last week because uh, Luke, he quotes Isaiah 40. He, he talks about the mission of John, and he, he uses this beautiful illustration that he gets from Isaiah 40. It says in chapter 3, verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, it's interesting because if you compare this, this passage to Isaiah 43, you're going to notice that Luke changed a couple words. 
that he's interpreting it in, in, in a sense. Because in Isaiah 43, it says, make straight in the desert a highway for our Lord. So the pathway that, that John is supposed to prepare for the Lord is not just this tiny way, but it's a highway that he's preparing And we see in verse 5, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. There's going to be dramatic change that takes place as John the Baptist is preparing for the Lord. That that you're going to see mountains get moved, you're going to see crooked roads get straight. All these different things are taking place, and to some degree we said that This represents the preparation that takes place in our heart to receive the Lord as well last week. But the problem is, this doesn't impress many of us because we've been on 66 before. We know construction can be big. We have seen mountains be moved and valleys be filled, right? Like we have seen construction take place for for years to change the landscape of, of our society. And so when we read words like this, of Isaiah, of, of Luke, we're not that impressed. I mean, what's the big deal with mountains being leveled and, and valleys being filled? But you have to remember, the people who are listening to this message in the first century, they, they didn't have all the tools to do um, the construction that we do today. They didn't have all the engineers, and so most of their roads were actually dirt roads, they were like the hiking trails that we see today, uh, just the natural trails that are formed based on how many people are walking those roads. And, and so you have enough people stomping on the ground, and, and it becomes hard, and, and, and so people continue to walk on those grounds. You would never make a road or build a road in such a degree unless you are a king. And that's something that people would understood immediately when they saw the passage Isaiah 40 or if they heard the words of John the Baptist. Unless you are a powerful king, you would never do this type of construction to prepare a way, a road. We know from history, especially in the Roman Empire, uh, they were known for making roads. That's why we say all roads lead to Rome or we say the, the Roman way. We talk about how highways were constructed during this time period for the Roman Empire. And a lot of it was because when the emperor was going somewhere, he made sure the road was nice. Because he's not just walking to that place. He has his chariots. He has all his people. He has this big crowd that's following him. So he needs the road to be prepared, to be nice. And so what he would do normally is he would send servants engineers in front of him and those people would go out tell villages tell cities that the emperor is coming the king is coming and what they would do is they would prepare the roads they would look at their roads they would fill in the holes they would level any bumps that are there because the king is coming like that's a big deal the emperor is coming to our town what an honor like our roads need to be worthy of of him but what you see in, in Luke chapter 3 is it's not just a couple holes that are being filled or a couple bumps that are being leveled. The Bible says that every mountain will be leveled. Every valley would be feel, filled. All these crooked roads become straight and, and those things that are rough will be smoothed out. This is more than the construction that took place for the Roman emperor. This is the preparation that takes place for the ultimate king. 
That's what John is saying in Luke chapter 3, that the one who is coming is not just another king, but he's it. He's actually God. In Isaiah 43, it says, Make straight in the desert a highway for God. God himself is coming. He is the ultimate king. It's not just another person that's stepping into our lives. It's actually Jesus Christ who is the ultimate king. And that's exactly why John says in verse 16, as people are asking him, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? He says, no, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John sees that Jesus is not just greater than him. He sees that Jesus is the king. We, we know this because he says that he's unworthy to even untie the sandals of Jesus, which is a big deal. Because in the first century, uh, people didn't have nice shoes. Uh, most of them walked either barefoot or open sandals. And so after a long day, they would return to their house. And if you had servants or slaves, um, what you would do is you would have them take off your shoes. You would have them wash your feet because their feet were, were so nasty, so smelly, so gross, uh, that, it, that, that responsibility, that job to, to wash the feet of the master, to untie the sandals of the master, was reserved for not just a servant, but the lowest servant, the youngest servant, was responsible to do that dirty job. And what John says here is this, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. In other words, I'm not even worthy to be called his servant or slave. Like, that's how high Jesus is and how low I am. I understand who I am. People might think I'm the Christ, but Jesus is far greater than what we can ever imagine. You know, this is a big deal because John the Baptist was not just a dude. He was praised by people, but he was praised by Jesus as well. Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 7, verse 28, I tell you, among all the people who are born of a woman, which is pretty much everyone, John is the greatest. Like there's no one who's greater than John who was born of a woman. And that was a big statement that was made. Like even Jesus thought, thought highly of John the Baptist, and yet John, he understands his position. He understands who he is and who Jesus is. And that is why he says, in John chapter 3, verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease in this life. He must be exalted and I must be humbled. Like, I'm nothing compared to him. Jesus, he is a greater. And John is preparing the way, not just for another guy, not just for another prophet, but he's preparing the way of the Lord, of the king. So Jesus is greater. And the second point I want to make is this. Jesus, his work is greater as well. Not just as a person, but his work is greater. It says in verse 16, John, as he's answering this question, are you the Messiah? He says, I baptize you with water, but Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, John, his last name is not Baptist, by the way. Like, that's something that was associated with John because baptism was his signature move. Uh, I don't know if you watch a lot of wrestling, but if you see the choke slam, th that's the signature move of the undertaker. Like, or maybe you like dancing. Moonwalk. Michael Jackson. Maybe you like basketball. 
the sky hook, Kareem. Or you have Dirk, one leg, a fadeaway, LeBron James, uh, maybe the, I don't know, the chalk toss or the chase down uh, block, MJ dunking with your tongue sticking out. Like, you have all these signature moves that you associate with these great figures. John, his signature move was the baptism. Like, everyone, when they thought of baptism, they thought of John. Like, he's so famous with his baptism to the point that everyone's calling him John, literally, the Baptist. And yet, he says, my baptism is nothing compared to what Jesus is going to do. Because I baptize with water, but Jesus, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and also with fire. My baptism is just symbolic. Jesus, his baptism is eternal. There is eternal significance with Jesus' baptism. That the Holy Spirit, it invites the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. It also has eternal significance because it is the baptism of fire. Now, what does that mean? Um, what is the baptism of fire? Where, well, we, we get this illustration in verse 17. John explains this a bit more. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so he's using this imagery that you would use in, during harvest time where you have this winnowing fork. Uh, the farmer would normally toss the grain up in the air. And as the grain is up in the air, uh, the wind would take away the chaff, the outer kind of part, the outer shell of the grain, uh, which you can't eat. You, it's basically a waste, so you're going to throw that away or burn it later on. And so th- that chaff will be carried away by the wind. But what you have on the ground is the, the heavy wheat, the, the stuff that you want to eat. So what John the Baptist is saying is this. Through Jesus' ministry, people are going to be divided. That there are going to be people who trust Jesus. There are going to be people who refuse Jesus. Those who trust Jesus, what's going to happen to them is they're going to be collected and be taken into his barn. So they are going to be joining with Jesus in his house. But those who are refusing to believe in Jesus, they are going to be judged by Jesus with this unquenchable fire. So John the Baptist lays out it plainly. He says that there are two ways that you can live, two reactions that you have um, when you see Jesus. And based on these two reactions, there are two eternal destinations. And so the message is clear. And that is really scary because, you know, on one hand, you love the fact that you can believe in Jesus and be with him. But on the other hand, the fact that if you reject Jesus, you face eternal judgment, that's a scary thought. But notice what it says in verse 18. It says, so with many other exhortations, John, he preached good news to the people. His message was scary, but the Bible says it's actually good news. Why? Because there's still time. Now, it would be one thing if your house is on fire and there's no way out. Literally, you have no chance to leave the house and for someone to come up to you and tell you, well, the house is on fire. Good luck. Like, that would be a terrible thing because there's no time. You, there's, there's no choice that you can make to escape the disaster that's coming your way. But if your house is on fire and, and still, it's, there's still time, there's still a chance for you to leave the house then that's good news. 
that someone would actually let you know that disaster is coming. And what John is saying is the reason why this is such good news is because this is a reality that's coming, but there's something that you can do about it, that you can believe in Jesus, that you can trust in him. And John shared this message with pretty much everyone. He was so confident in this message. It says in verse 19, he shared it with Herod the Tetrarch, who had a lot of issues in his marriage, in his love life. Um, we'll look at this later on, but he had something with his brother's wife uh, and, and all these things. And so he was living this life that, that, that was um, not necessarily honoring to the Lord. And people were afraid to say this to Herod because they were afraid of, of his power, his position. Uh, they were just keeping things in the dark. But John the Baptist, he stands up and he's, says to Herod in his face, uh, that's wrong. That's a sin. A sin is a sin. Uh, you need to repent. Just like he told the people who came to the Jordan River to repent, he says the same message to the high official, Herod, you need to repent because that is not right before the Lord. Just like he spoke to the soldiers, just like he spoke to the tax collectors earlier in the passage, he speaks truth to Herod. And as a result, it says in verse 20, he ended up in jail. And this says a lot about John's conviction in the gospel because John is not afraid of people. He does not change his message or alter his message based on who he's preaching to, but he understands that he's simply a messenger, that the message is already from God, that all he has to do is preach that faithfully to everyone in all circumstances, no matter what the consequence might be. And so he shares this message, and as a result, he ends up in prison. Later on, he ends up losing his life in a very traumatic way. But this is not a sign of failure. It's actually a sign of faithfulness. I think that's important to know. That just because you face suffering as you're following Jesus does not mean that Jesus has failed you. But it's the fact that in the midst of suffering that you can remain faithful, that's a sign of faithfulness on your behalf. So last week we talked about true repentance. We said that true repentance focuses on your personal sin. True repentance is different from religion because you're not simply trying to avoid or run away from a fire or avoid disaster. Uh, we also said that, that true religion bears fruit. But here's the thing. What would motivate you to repent? If, if all those things are, 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 are true, if true religion is not motivated by religious reasons, if true religion is not motivated by works, what, what, what would motivate you to change? Because repentance is change, right? You're turning away from your sin, and you are walking in faith to God. What would motivate you? I think there's one thing. When you begin to see Jesus for who he really is, you're going to change. Like, if someone tells me a friend is coming to my house, I ain't cleaning up. I ain't doing the dishes. I mean, I'm not changing anything. But if someone's important, if they're visiting my house, I'm making sure. I'm, 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 I'm vacuuming. I'm even cleaning all the toilets and everything. Like, I'm making sure everything is well prepared. Why? Because that guest is worthy of my best. I think the same is true when it comes to our lives. The reason why we struggle to honor Jesus in every aspect of our lives I think it's because we have such a low view of Jesus. We love the idea that Jesus is our friend because it makes us feel good and not alone, which is true. 
Jesus, you know, talks about how only a, a, you know, a friend, the biggest thing that we can do is lay down our lives for one another. Like, so he is a good friend. We love the image of Jesus being the good shepherd because he provides for us, protects us, like, and we just have to be sheep. Not, not a hard thing to be sheep, right? Just stay there, enjoy that time. We also love the idea that Jesus is our savior. Why? Because all we need to do is just be saved. We don't have to do anything. Like, if we're drowning in the water, all we have to do is just relax and let the person who's saving us do the work. But when you come to this idea that Jesus is your king, it offends people. People don't embrace this. They hate this. Why? Because it's, it's going to cost you everything. Like us living in a free country, being able to make decisions for ourselves. First of all, that idea of a king is so foreign uh, to us, but also it's, it's frightening to us as well. Because when we acknowledge that Jesus is our king, it means that we, don't, uh, that we have to adjust to him, that we have to honor his word, that we have to understand his ways and adjust our ways to his ways in every aspect of our life. You don't get to choose which areas of your life that you're going to adjust to your king. If Jesus is not king over all things, he's not king at all. And what the Bible is telling us today is that he is the king who's coming. Prepare the way of the Lord, that he's going to move mountains and he's going to fill up valleys, that supernatural things are going to take place in our lives, in our hearts, and salvation is made available to everyone. And that he is so much greater than I, that he is so much powerful and mightier than I, that he deserves all these different things. The question is, do you recognize that Jesus is this king? If so, obedience becomes something that, that, that is easy. Obedience becomes something that is delightful because you want to honor the king. Um, there are times that um, I'm on the road and um, you have police stopping the traffic and, and you're just waiting for minutes, like maybe like 10 minutes, and then all of a sudden you have a long line of cars drive by. Like, and then everything is restored again. Uh, we often do that, traffic control for high officials, governors maybe, president for sure. Um, if we do that for a, a human official, for a governor, for a president, like if the entire society has to adjust to the way of the president in a way because they're controlling all the traffic and everything, how much more should we adjust our lives and leverage our lives for the glory of the true king? our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. True repentance begins within the heart, within this understanding that Jesus is the king and he deserves all things. I think the reason why we struggle to really embrace Jesus as a true king is because sometimes um, we have such a low view of Jesus. Sometimes it's because we have such a high view of ourselves. We have a high view of Jesus, but also we have such a high view of ourselves. That, that's kind of what the Pharisees were, right? That... They had a high view of God, but also they had such a high view of themselves. They thought they were super righteous, perfect in a way that they deserved salvation, and therefore they never saw the need to repent and go to Jesus. Some people just have such a low view of themselves and a low view of Jesus as well. Like, I think those are the people, maybe the Samaritan woman um, in the well, and they feel like, man, who can ever love me and embrace me? Um, they have such a low view of themselves, but also a low view of Jesus. And the correct view 
that you and I should have is we should have an incredible high view of Jesus and understand that we are incredibly low compared to him, that he is so much greater than I. And if that is true, then he should have the final say in every aspect of our lives. You know, this idea of a king is quite interesting throughout the Bible because the people of Israel, they don't start off with a king. It's only after the book of Judges, uh, after going through so many different leaders, that they come to Samuel and say, we want a king. We want a king, but it's interesting that they say, we want a king who would fight on our behalf, who would fight our battles for us. That's what they say. And, and they get a king in Saul, but the problem is, when it's time to fight on, on the people's behalf against Goliath, what does Saul do? He doesn't go out. He just stands in his crib. He's like, no, there's no way I'm going to fight that giant. And so David steps up. He goes out as a champion, as a representative, and he fights on behalf of Israel, on behalf of God. And through his fights, salvation takes place in the people of Israel. They are saved from the Philistines. The reason why we are scared of a king is because we don't have good experiences with people in power. We feel like they abuse their power. They make decisions that are good for them, but not for us. But did you know that Jesus is not like any other king in this world? He's not going to use his power to abuse you, to just get things from you, but he's going to use his power to protect you, to fight a battle on your behalf. How do you know that? Look at the cross. Because that's the place that he ultimately fought on your behalf against sin against death. He proved to you that he's a king that's willing to stand right in the front lines of the battle to fight on your behalf. If, if we have a king that's willing to not just lay down his life, but actually lay down his life for us, then what, what can we withhold in our lives from him? He deserves everything, all the glory. And so he's coming. Whether you recognize it or not, it says the way of the Lord. That means he is coming. In the book of Revelation, it ends with three repetitions that Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. The king is eventually coming. Are you prepared? If not, there's still time. Because John is telling us today that we can still live a life where Jesus is greater than I, and we simply humble ourselves before his feet. So let's do that today. Amen? Let's pray.